How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1 if necessary. But everybody looks so nice, and I can't imagine anybody needing to use First John 1, 9 tonight. But we'll give you that chance anyway. And then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, that it is your word that you use to, uh, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to mature us, to bring us to uh, spiritual adulthood, to teach us how to think as you would have us to think. Father, we live in a time and an era not too different from most other times and eras when the world around us is dominated by uh, false thinking, thinking about so many different aspects of life that is predicated upon shaky foundations, based upon thinking that is contrary to your word, and too often and too much of the time our own thinking has been wrongly influenced by the cosmic system. Now, Father, as we study this touchstone area of creation, which is at the foundation of so much of thought, we pray that you would help us to see its implications and its importance for our own lives, our own thinking, that this is not simply some academic exercise, but is to give us a greater understanding and appreciation of all that you have done and provided for us. We just pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study in Genesis, and we're marching along at a rapid rate where we are now in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And a couple of classes back, we began to answer four key questions. Now, these are important questions that are often addressed and ans- answered in studying Genesis because there is such an incredible amount of pressure on people from the cosmic system, from the intellectual systems of the uh, cosmic system around us to accommodate the Bible with these other views. This is the essence of syncretism, which we have discussed many times recently. The idea that you can take the Bible and then merge it with whatever seems to be the the thinking, the accepted realities of the culture around it. Somehow to knock the rough edges off the Bible so it doesn't seem to always have this head-to-head, nose-to-nose, toe-to-toe confrontation with the world around us. But as we have seen in our previous studies, the whole doctrine of creation is just that. It always has been that. It was a head-to-head confrontation in the ancient world. There was no other ancient cosmogony that taught ex nihilo, that is creation from nothing, ex nihilo creation. In the time of Christ, uh, in the time of the Apostle Paul, when Paul goes out to interact with the Gentiles, he came into a head-to-head confrontation and didn't back down from teaching creation, that the God was the creator of all things. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. In fact, Paul starts there, contrary to the way most Christians today operate in evangelism, we don't want to muddy the waters and create some sort of confrontation on a non-essential issue, so we want to start at the cross. But you can't understand the cross unless you understand the creation and the standards established in the Garden of Eden and man's violation of that standard. So creation is seen by the Apostle Paul and by the Apostle Peter and others as foundational to uh, any kind of gospel approach to the Gentiles. 
So we always run into these sort of confrontations, and the world is quite adept at constantly trying to undercut the teaching of Scripture and attack Genesis 1 through 11. And the reason is because if Genesis 1 through 11 is thrown out in any way, shape, or form, then everything else in the Bible suffers. Everything else from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22 is built upon what is taught in Genesis 1 through 11. So we have to be very precise and be very careful that we don't fall into the trap of accepting the conclusions today of empirical science as absolute fact. We have to stick with the Scriptures, interpret the Scriptures in light of the Scriptures, and then, no matter how much it may run foul of modern theories of science, we must uh, be willing to accept the Bible for what it says. So, with that, the first question we answered, isn't Genesis 1 myth? comparable to other ancient legends and mythologies. And the assumption there is that all religious literature is the same kind of thing. It's simply man's uh, feeble attempts to try to explain ultimate reality, man's cultural attempts to try to explain what he doesn't understand. And so Genesis 1 and the beginnings of uh, the Bible are no different from the beginnings in any other ancient culture. And so we took time to look at Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation epic, to show that indeed there is a radical difference between biblical uh, creation in Genesis 1 and the ancient cosmogonies of the ancient world. I didn't take time to go through Egyptian, Greek, Canaanite mythologies, but they're all basically the same. Everything starts with some sort of watery chaos. There's already some sort of existent matter, some sort of existent mass that is personified by some god or goddess. There's a war in the heavens, and one god uh, violently uh, destroys the body of another god or goddess, and from that body the heavens and the earth are made. Now what's interesting is there's always a certain amount of truth in these these stories, and that is because they are man's, they, they merely reflect a vague memory of creation, a vague memory of the angelic conflict, the fact that you have this array of, of deities that are engaged in a in a warfare for control of the heavens, is just a pale reflection of the truth that there was a war in the heavens, and that was the angelic conflict. But that's where things began to break down, and you see that there's the same continuity between all of these uh, creation methodologies, and that is or these creation cosmogonies, and that is that, that everything began with something already existent. Only the Bible has this. Uh, creation from nothing at the very beginning, and a God who rules over everything. Furthermore, we see that the personages in the ancient Near Eastern creation epics are uh, interacted with in a very subtle way by Moses' explanation of creation. Indeed, it is a polemic against these accounts that, that whereas the forces of nature are the ultimate forces of reality in these creation epics, in the Bible, it is God who creates the forces of nature and rules over the forces of nature. So the second question that we answered or began to answer last time, could there be millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? And could this not be the time frame for historical geology, the dinosaurs, and caveman? And this is the question related to what has commonly come to be called the gap theory. That there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and that the existence of all the fossil creatures, the dinosaurs, uh, cavemen, primitive man, all of these were, you just can solve all the problems of conflicts between the Bible and science by just taking all those things and dumping them uh, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And we are still finalizing our discussion on that question. Then we'll come to the question, how long are the days? This is another accommodationist view. The idea that the days in Genesis 1-1 aren't literal 24-hour days, but that each day really represents a geologic age or an era of millions of years. And God comes along, and, and you have various approaches there. We'll get into some of the alternative theories explaining that with that accommodationist view. And then fourth, the question, could God simply use evolution as the mechanism for creation? And this is what is called 
theistic evolution. Now, last time, we began to look at the question in um, uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, dealing with the gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created uh, bara, the heavens and the earth, indicating a complete creation. Then we come to verse 2. Now, I'm looking at the King James, or the New King James translation up here, and I know the New American Standard Version translates it the same way, and I suspect the NIV lacks any kind of conjunction at the beginning of the verse there. Any of you using an NIV? Well, that's good. You're all going to go to heaven. No, I'm just kidding. I just, one of the things I did do on vacation, see, I don't just let my mind veg out. I was reading a new book on hermeneutics by a scholar, professor at Master's Seminary called Evangelical Hermeneutics, The New and the Old. And he has some excellent uh, information in that book. It's, it's a great tool that any pastor should be reading. And he has a chapter dealing with dynamic equivalence. Now, there's a fancy word for you. Dynamic equivalence is the technical term for the translation theory that underlies the New International Version, as opposed to formal equivalence, which is the theory that underlies the uh, uh, translation of the New American Standard Bible and the King James Bible and New King James. In formal equivalence, you want to try to be stay as close as possible to the original. You have to clean up a certain number of things. You don't want to be as, if you make it too wooden, it won't read well in the English. So you have to do a certain amount of smoothing over and a certain amount of interpretation. That's unavoidable, but you want to keep it to the absolute minimum. In fact, in a good translation, much to my chagrin, you always learn something new when you read things and have to uh, correct yourself a little bit, a good translation technically maintains the same level of ambiguity in a phrase that the original has. And it's up to the pastor teacher or the professor or the teacher to explain the ambiguity. But if you have a certain ambiguity, for example, a phrase like love of God in the, in the original, and you have to decide what kind of genitive that is, then um, that's getting into interpretation. And one person may take it one way and another person take it another way, but that is exegesis and hermeneutics. That's not translation. So technically speaking, a good translation, a good translator doesn't solve those problems in translating a Bible. He leaves it there for the pastor or the teacher to be able to, to handle. Unfortunately, in dynamic equivalents like the NIV, you try to handle as many of those problems as you can, which introduces hermeneutics into translation. And you start interpreting what the Scripture says. And I can't give you many examples right now. I know that in 1 Corinthians 3.1, the author clearly interprets, uh, instead of translating sarkikos, flesh, which is what the word actually means, fleshly or carnal, he translates it worldly because he has a crummy theology related to anthropology and the makeup of the sin nature. So see, if your translator has bad theology and he starts interpreting in the process, then you end up with translations that communicate poor anemic theology. So one of the things you do see is that uh, there is a failure in almost every translation to stick with the original uh, language here where verse 2 begins with a conjunction. Verse 2 in the Hebrew begins with a conjunction. Like I said last time, at the risk of boring everybody to tears, we have to deal with some extremely technical Hebrew exegesis here. It starts with a conjunction, then a noun, and then a verb. But this is not the standard Hebrew sentence structure. Standard Hebrew sentence structure is conjunction, verb, and then noun. So when you have conjunction noun, this introduces what is called a disjunctive phrase. That means you're introducing a new, a new topic, something that is different from the previous topic. So this can be translated, but, or in some ancient 
Latin translations was actually translated however with the Latin word autem. So there is a contrast. Now, I have spent the last three weeks wading through uh, pages and pages. I've spent years on this subject, but pages and pages of new lexical data and syntactical data. You can't believe how much ink has been used discussing the problems of Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And so I have tried to crank through a lot of stuff and summarize as much material as possible because there is just a tremendous amount to wade through. But in the looking at this, one of the issues is whether or not verse 2, is, is a, which consists of three circumstantial clauses, and the earth, or but the earth, was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering. Those are three circumstantial clauses. Now, a circumstantial clause describes the circumstances surrounding the action of the main verb. This begins, this sentence is a not a, an independent sentence. It is a dependent sentence. But the question then becomes, is it dependent on the first verse or on the third verse? In other words, is it describing the circumstances of God creating the heavens and the earth? In which case it would be translated, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. Or is it circumstantial to the third verse? And it is circumstantial to the third verse. You do not have the type of structure in the first verse necessary to have that as a dependent clause. It is a, or the temporal clause, the preposition ba in the beginning should be taken as a, uh, as an independent statement in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the original creation. The earth, the three circumstantial clauses, but the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving, fluttering over the face of the waters when God said. Those three clauses describe the conditions existing on the earth when God first spoke on day one. So the three circumstantial clauses describe the conditions that existed on the face of the earth on day one. Now, I made the point last time that God is perfect, his work is perfect, and based on Deuteronomy 32.4, Matthew 5.48, then what comes from the hand of God is perfection. God does not create a chaotic mess. Now, one verse I did not look at last time is in Isaiah 45.18. But before we get there, I want you to look at the overhead and get you the idea of what's going on here. You have various stages of creation. You have an initial earth, the, which is also comparable to Eden, the Garden of God, which is mentioned as the place of the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 28, where it talks about the cherub, the anointed cherub, which is Satan, who is cast out of Eden. Now, what Eden is that? The description in Ezekiel 28 doesn't fit the description of Genesis chapter 3. It is not Eden, uh, the garden where man is placed, east of Eden, but it is the location of the throne room of God. So God seemed to have a throne, a center point on planet Earth. I don't have any, the, the circle, the black circle, represents the creation of the time-space universe. Um, that is the heavens. There are no stars there. The reason I say there are no stars there is because stars are not mentioned until you get down to verse 15, where you have, uh, with reference to, or excuse me, down on verse, where am I? Verse 16. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. The verb that is associated with that is, the. if you notice in your Bible, it probably has he made in italics. The reason is, is you have a two-word statement, and uh, actually it's one word in the Hebrew, and the stars. But it is picked up by the main verb, then God made Asa, 
Then God made the two great lights. And so that verb also governs the final statement. He doesn't, and the word asa doesn't mean to appear. You have different words for appear. Some have suggested that, that what happens is you have in your initial creation of the universe that God had stars and the sun, and then as a result of the satanic judgment, uh, they disappeared and then they, they, they reappear. That doesn't work. It doesn't fit the verbiage. Asa means to make. So what we have, I think, pretty clearly in this verse is that God does not make the, the present sun and the present stars until you get to the, the fourth day. So you either have a condition in the early or the original creation of no stars, which is fine. It just you, you have no sun in the ultimate uh, new heavens and new earth following in Revelation 22. There's no sun then, and there's no sun and moon then. So why do you have to have a sun and moon and stars in the original creation? Just because you have one in the current universe doesn't mean you have to have one in every universe. So you have a universe and one planet, and that is planet Earth. And on that planet you have this uh, throne room of God from which Satan is cast. And at that time there is a judgment on the planet. And everything is cast into darkness and becomes tohu vabohu, that is, uh, in chaos and emptiness. And then you have uh, the recreation that occurs starting in Genesis chapter uh, 1 verse 3 where you have the seven days of actual restoration. Now one reason we say that is because of this terminology tohu vabohu translated uh, without form and void. But the word tohu is also used in a very important passage in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18. And there we read, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it, and did not create it a waste place. Notice you have all, you can even tell this in the English, you have all three words for creation, or three of the four actually, in verse 18, who created the heavens, Asa, I mean Bara, he is the God who formed Yatser, the earth, and made it Asa. He established it and did not create it, Bara, a waste place, Tohu. So we have a specific statement in Isaiah 45:18 that God did not create the earth a waste place. Uh, he did not create it uh, without form. He actually a waste place or a, a chaotic waste. He creates it orderly. God is a God of order, and so God creates the earth in an and its ordered manner. Something happens then that introduces this concept of uh, tohu vabohu or judgment. And I referred to verses such as Jeremiah 44, 23 to 26, and Isaiah 34, 11 to show that this terminology is always associated in the Old Testament with a judgment from God. So there's a the first phrase, without form and void, is a phrase that indicates the action of divine judgment on the the uh, planet. Furthermore, it's not simply that one act of divine judgment, but it is the act of, uh, but there's a second phrase, and that is darkness. Darkness is a, another concept that also indicates judgment, and everywhere else in the scripture when you have the concept of darkness, you have an indication of some sort of judgment. For example, there's darkness uh, over Egypt in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. Joel 2.2 talks about a day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment at the end of the tribulation being a time of darkness and gloom. There's darkness on the uh, earth when Jesus is judged for our sins. In John 3.19, this is a judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. Darkness always has this negative connotation of something associated with evil and with judgment. And then the third phrase, 
that the Spirit of God was, uh, excuse me, the third phrase has to do with the word deep. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And this is the the uh, word uh, Tiamat, and that is uh, also associated with something uh, judgmental. In fact, if you look at the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint translates it with the Greek word abusos, which is where we get our English word abyss. And everywhere you see abyss in the Scriptures, this is the place where the angels are sent for punishment. So this is the, all of this terminology works together to present an image of judgment on, on the earth. It's not just one phrase. It's not just tohu bohu. It's not just darkness. It's not just deep. It is also this concept that there of uh, all three of them working together. Now, another thing that comes across in the in this particular uh, passage is that there's a certain play on words that takes place here a certain play on words that uh, w- would not be evident except in the English. For example, bohu. Bohu is a cognate. Let me put this up on the overhead here. In the phrase tohu va bohu, the word bohu is a cognate of the Assyrian word bahu. Bahu was the personification of chaos chaos and disorder in the Assyrian pantheon. Bahu, this demonic personage in the Assyrian pantheon, is frequently associated in the literature with Tiamat. Remember, Tiamat is a name that is uh, etymologically related to the Hebrew word tehom for deep. So Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is utilizing words that also carry other connotations that, that the Hebrews would be aware of. And it is this sort of this subtext that, he's, that, that comes across showing that God is in control of everything that's going on here. And it's an indication that, that the God of the Hebrews is in control over these uh, nature gods of the of the pagan peoples surrounding Israel. So that's just a little indication that there's more going on here than what we would normally pick up on in just reading reading the English. So we have three things here that indicate that there is some sort of a judgment that takes place in um, in this particular passage. Now it, it is clear from looking at the at the text, that there is a this this clear time gap between Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2. What happened historically was a couple of guys came along in the 19th century, primarily a guy named Thomas Chalmers. I mentioned the last time, who was one of the premier Scottish theologians in the early 19th century. And he was influenced by historical geology that was trying to come up with about a 35,000-year period, uh, I mean, age for the earth to a 50,000-year age for the earth. And so they're, they're simply trying to come up with another 30 or 40,000 years. So he latched on to a view that had been around for some time. And since we covered the last lesson, I've gone back, I've done a lot more research and worked through some things. And the idea that there is a gap between 1-1 and 1-2 goes back to at least the time of Christ. And based on certain Talmudic renderings, I think a fair case can be made that it goes back to the Mishnah, which predates Christ. The idea that in several of these translations, for example, in the Targum of Ankalos, which was a, a Midrash, that was written in the 2nd century A.D., this Targum of Ankalos translates Genesis 1-2 in this contrastive way with 
Genesis 1-1, as, and indicates there is a gap between 1-1 and 1-2. Not only do you have the Targum of Ankalos, but you have various other writings in the early church fathers. So, for example, Clement of Rome, who writes at the, he, he, his, his time uh, really overlaps the Apostle John. He writes at the end of the first century. You have Clement of Rome. You have Origen you, in the second, late second century, early third century, and Tertullian. All mention, uh, all translate Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 in this contrastive way, indicating a gap between 1, 1, and 1, 2. Furthermore, in various rabbinical commentaries, even though they're very uh, mystical in the way they, they uh, apply the text, they couldn't get where they're going if they didn't assume a gap between 1, 1, and 1, 2. So the idea of a gap goes back into at least the uh, early rabbinic period predating the time of Christ and can be traced throughout the early church and on into the medieval period. But, but the fact that there was a gap there was simply this to explain the fall of Satan and the introduction of evil. It is not an indication that there are vast time frames, like millions or billions of years, as demanded by modern evolution. In fact, there's no indication of how long this time was. You'll often find people who say, well, it was millions or billions of years. But as I keep saying, the only reason we come up with millions and billions of years is because that is what uh, science seems to suggest. But if it weren't for science, nobody would be putting that kind of a time frame in there. And I think the dating methods of science can be and are being challenged. There are problems uh, along the uh, many different ways, uh, along with radiometric dating, carbon-14 dating, and yet there are many other things that seem to suggest a young Earth. Now, one of the basic problems, though, that I, that I think is most telling is the theological problem, and that is related to an understanding of 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. And I want to go over this again. It crops up again and again and again, where people want to, if you have any fossils before Genesis 1, 2, to create a fossil, something has to die. 1 Corinthians 15:21 says for since by a man came death by a man also came the resurrection of the dead this is a clear statement because the word death there is without the article which means it's a qualitative use which refers to death in principle that death in principle comes by a man that means whatever else you can say about the rebellion of Satan, they did not die spiritually. You can't apply the word death to whatever happened to the demons when they rebelled against God. You can't apply the concept of death to anything prior to Genesis uh, chapter 3 when Adam eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it is by a man that death came. Now, when we take that verse, and we have to connect it to Romans chapter 8. Many people think that this only affected the human race, but Romans 8 tells us that Adam's sin not only affected the human race, it affected the entirety of creation. Paul makes the statement starting in Romans 8:18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he's building a theology of suffering. And then he explains what he means. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, that refers to the fact that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be manifested in full glory as the bride of Christ at the second coming of Christ. It is at that time that the curse is rolled back. It is at that time that the lion will lie down with the lamb. It is not until then that there will be a world without military conflict. It is not until then that the... Um, Swords will be beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, and man will learn war no more. It is not until then that the curse starts to get rolled back. So between Genesis 3 and the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, there is going to be war, and there is going to be 
misery in the whole creation. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the point in verse 21, let's, we'll just work backwards from 21 to 20, is that the creation isn't delivered. The creation doesn't experience the benefits of redemption until the sons of God are made manifest at the second coming of Christ. This indicates that there are clear ramifications to nature, to creation, as a result of Adam's sin, so that this the curse that applies to creation and to nature, to the physical reality, is not reversed until the second coming of Christ. That all of creation, that would include the universe, that would include everything on planet Earth, that would include the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, is impacted by Adam's sin, even though the penalty was spiritual death, there were physical consequences. There were changes in biology, changes in botany, changes in zoology, changes in geology, changes in astronomy. All of the natural realm, all of the physical material realm was changed. One or two examples, the serpent changes its its structure. It's now going to crawl. And second, we see that the ground is cursed in Genesis 3.17 so that it would now produce thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles would not be produced prior to that. So there is this shift in uh, basic botany, and uh, animals are going to change. They were originally designed to eat, um, j- just to eat from the grass of the earth. For example, in verse 30 of chapter 1, uh, starting, well, actually, Genesis 1.29, God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. So the animal kingdom, from the fish in the seas to the birds of the air to the livestock and the beasts of the, of the field, all were herbivores. They all ate uh, from the vegetation. Now, someone might say, well, wouldn't that mean that the plants died? I mean, if you eat a plant, wouldn't it be dead? Well, not in biblical terminology, because in the scriptures, as we'll see as we go through Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the the creatures, the creatures of the sea, the creatures of the air, the creatures of the field, they are all said to be living things, nefesh. The Hebrew word nefesh, which in some places means soul, but in its more generic term simply means life. The term nefesh is applied to all fish, birds, uh, land creatures, and is applied to man. The word nefesh is never applied to plants. Plants don't have the same kind of life that animals have. So plants can't die. They can't lose nefesh. Death is described in Scripture as a separation of nefesh from its physical home. Therefore, your, your vegetation doesn't die. Now, I know that there's a lot of greenies out there and tree huggers who really don't, wouldn't like that, but um, plants don't die, not in the biblical sense of death. So therefore, you don't have any death prior to Adam. Adam's uh, Adam's sin. So you have clear indication from a theological argument that death comes by Adam's sin. That that and that's in First Corinthians 15 is clearly talking about physical death because it is in the context of physical bodily resurrection. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now somebody recently asked me about resurrection bodies and. If the model holds for Christ's resurrection body, then our resurrection body will be put together from the basic material, whatever is left over, of our present physical body. Remember when Jesus rose bodily from the grave and the women and later John and Peter came into the, the tomb, the grave clothes were left exactly where they would have been as if the body had been there. The body 
let the, the physical body was gone. So God in his omniscience knows where every single molecule is. You don't have to worry about being cremated and having your ashes scattered from one end of the earth to the other. You don't have to worry about what happens if you get caught in a nuclear disaster and you basically get vaporized. Uh, omniscient God knows where every molecule is, and God is going to put a new body together if that's the pattern. Uh, that it is taken, the old is taken and made new again, and it has new properties. The, one of the interesting descriptions in the New Testament is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and every description of Jesus' resurrection body is flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. So there is clearly certain physiological properties that are different in a resurrection body that allows it to materialize, dematerialize, pass through doors, uh, travel at the speed of light, etc. But apparently the matter from which it is made originally is our present matter. And, uh, and yet it will have totally new properties, and most of us will be looking better in better shape, not quite so heavy or quite so thin, or whatever your physiological weakness is, uh, it will be changed. Now, in, for, as we continue our exegesis of verse 2, we read that the earth was without form and void, and darkness w- was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's get a corrected translation. But the earth, or now the earth. And then we have our verb was, and I haven't talked much about the verb was. This is the Hebrew verb hayah. H-A-Y-A-H, which is your basic verb to be, which is called an equative verb. But in some places, and in many places actually, it has the connotation of became. Became. But in this passage, it is in the cal perfect. Now, cal is your your simple stem, your simple form in, in the Hebrew. And it, usually the perfect tense is translated in English as either a simple past, uh, it was or it became, but it also can have a plu, an English pluperfect nuance. And remember, anytime you have that concept of perfect in a tense, it indicates completed action in the past. Completed action in the past. And this holds true for the perfect tense of Hayah. And in fact, it is translated that way in a couple of different passages. For example, uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 20, verses 3 and 4, where in chapter 20 is the episode where Abraham is once again lied to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, about the identity of Sarah. He said, ah, she's not my wife, she's, she's really my sister. And so Abimelech took her, took her and put her in his harem. Well, God is going to warn off Abimelech and comes to him in a dream at night and says to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now, uh, I can imagine that Abimelech, if God appeared to me in a dream and said, You're a dead man. Well, my hair would probably turn white and fall out. Down in verse 24, we see the situation. Now, Abimelech had not come near her. This is a clear statement that he had not had uh, intimate relations with Sarah. And it is a cow stem of the verb, and it is translated, had not come, indicating a perfect tense, indicated the uh, completedness of the action that he had not come near her in any way. So then uh, Abimelech bargains with God not to slay him because he had not come near Sarah. So that gives us uh, not just that passage. There are many, many others I could use to illustrate this. But that gives us an exegetical basis for translating became as the earth had become indicating a transformation that had taken place. The earth had become in the past. Now the earth, or but the earth, had become uh, formless chaos or disordered chaos and empty. 
and deep darkness was on the face of the abyss, or the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over, or began to hover, uh, was hovering over the face of the waters when God spoke, verse 3. So the best translation then that we should have for uh, Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 2 A corrected translation should read, uh, But the earth had become a disordered waste and empty, and there was darkness on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. Now, as I've stated earlier, there there were several attempts to accommodate modern science to Genesis chapter 1. The gap view, as it came to be called, The gap view was just one of several accommodationist views. Another accommodationist attempt is called progressive creationism. Progressive creationism, and I want to give you a definition of this. In progressive creationism, you have the idea of a number of acts of divine creation, but they are not in six consecutive days. In uh, one form of progressive creationism, you have one created day one, and then you have, let's say, a million years, and then you have another act of creation, then you have another, uh, let's say, two million years, and then you have your third day, and then you have another million years, and then you have your fourth day, and then another million years, and so on, you get the idea. The six days of creation are separated by millions of years. And in that view, what happens is that after each created act, there is a period of time where diversification or evolution takes place. This is called progressive creationism. And then another view that is inserted here that's somewhat similar is the day-age view where each day is not a literal 24-hour day, but each day may be uh, two or three million years long. Days would not be a precise 24-hour term. So day one lasts a couple of million years. Day two lasts a couple of million years. Day three lasts about four million years, and so on. And that way you can accommodate uh, Genesis chapter 1 to historical geology. Now, one complaint that I have heard, or one comment that I have heard, which really doesn't bear up to inspection, is the idea that if you if you take a young earth position, that you will never be able to effectively witness to any geologist. Well, I beg to differ. First of all, I know geologists who do not believe in the lengthy ages of historical geology. So that just indicates that if you're having trouble witnessing, and this is an issue with a geologist, he's just negative. You know, that would be like saying, well, Paul, you shouldn't talk about God creating. And to those Greeks in Acts 14, just talk about the cross. He never even talks about the cross. He focuses on God as creator, and they turn their back on him in Acts 17 in Athens. The, um, the problem is that you can't assume that geology's conclusions, modern historical geology, has accurate accurate conclusions. But this is what happens is that certain people feeling the pressure of the conclusions of historical theology try to accommodate the scriptures to that view. For example, one well-known theologian who used to teach out at Fuller Seminary when he was alive, uh, E.J. Carnell, Edward John Carnell, made the statement, since orthodoxy is given up on the literal day theory out of respect for geology. This was part of his statement. Since orthodoxy has given up on the literal day theory out of respect for geology. See, that statement makes it clear that uh, that the issue isn't exegesis. It's not Hebrew grammar. It's not linguistic evidence. The reason that Genesis 2 in the literal 24-hour day view is rejected is because of pressure from geology. 
So various folks have, have done that. And uh, Bernard Ram was one who took a progressive creationist view. Today, a man who is popularizing this on, uh, I think he's on the Trinity Broadcasting Network and a number of other shows, is a man named Hugh Ross, and also a very solid evangelical by the name of Norm Geisler. And Dr. Ge- I knew Dr. Geisler Dallas, and he's a very strong advocate of, of inerrancy of Scripture. But I, com- I completely and strongly reject the idea that a person can consistently hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture and the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration and hold to any form of an accommodationist theory. You can't hold to verbal plenary inspiration and progressive evolution, at least not consistently. I think they do not fit at all in any way, shape, or form, and yet that is the view of many many people today. Most Bible colleges and most Bible institutes have all bought into some accommodationist view or another. Now, Dallas Seminary hasn't. and Many other the more conservative seminaries hold to some uh, form of literal creation. Now, we come to the next question that we see, or just in conclusion, what we see on Genesis 1, 1 through 2 is there's an original creation, then we have darkness, and chaos, and this judgment on Satan and the fallen angels between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And then we are, do not have the right to insert into this period any kind of death, any kind of physical death, any pre-Adamic race, any fossils, or any stratification. See, what almost always happens, it doesn't always happen, and I don't want to accuse somebody of something that's not true, but it almost always happens that the more you try to stick everything between Genesis 1-1 or 1-2 or go to some sort of progressive creationist idea, the more you put an emphasis there, the less emphasis you have on the flood and the less of an impact the flood had on geology or on the planet. In fact, Hugh Ross completely rejects the idea that Genesis, uh, that the Noahic flood was worldwide. He says it was just a local flood, which shows a real misunderstanding and misreading of the text. Now, not everybody holds to a gap view or who holds to some sort of uh, progressive creationist view has a local flood view of Genesis chapter five, uh, chapter six through nine. But many do. Once you get weak on this, it always impacts other areas of Scripture. And then you have the seven days of restoration from Genesis 1-3 to 2-3. And this brings us to our next question, which is question three, how long are the days? Are they 24-hour days, or were they longer periods of time? Now the verse that now some people suggest that they were these long periods of time, which is called the day age view, and they go to passages like Psalm ninety verse four and second Peter three eight. Psalm ninety verse four reads, For a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by or is a watch in the night. Now when Peter quotes it, he says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So what these people want to do is come along and say, Well, the one day, each day, was equivalent to a thousand years. I mean, if you're going to take it literally, you've got to push it and say each day is only a thousand years. That still doesn't work. They want to take this figuratively, that the, that each day could be millions of years. But that's completely misreads both Psalm 90 and 2 Peter 3.8. The point in both of these passages is that God is timeless. God is, God is eternal. Eternal means that God is not subject to time at all. God doesn't have days. God doesn't have anything like a day. God has one eternal present. There are successions uh, of his creatures, but as far as God is concerned, he is eternal and he is timeless. Just as God's ways are not our ways, in Isaiah 55.9, God's days are not our days. This is not to be taken literally. It is a simple statement that God is timeless, and don't try to fit God's timing into our frame of reference. God is not a temporal being. 
when we come to the descriptions of the days in Genesis 1-3 through 2-3, we see that there are certain qualifications. For example, in verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Two things bear on the interpretation of day there. First of all, it's described as being evening and morning. Any reading of the text would suggest that that is the same frame of reference that you and I have. After one evening and one morning, it's the next 24-hour period. Furthermore, the Hebrew word for day is the word yom. Y-O-M. And whenever the word yom is used with a, an ordinal numeral like one, it always refers to a 24-hour period in every one of its uses in the Old Testament. There's about 260, or 259 uses of yom in the Old Testament, and every one of them refers to, or is, it refers to a literal 24-hour period. There's one problem passage in Hosea, but it is used in, a, uh, in, in, in an idiom that is based on an understanding of a 24-hour period. And I think it probably is a literal 24-hour period even in Hosea chapter 2. So uh, the term morning and evening always qualifies it. That, uh, when you have an ordinal numeral, it always indicates a literal 24-hour period. Now, some suggest that the term morning, which is the Hebrew word boker, B-O-Q-E-R, that the Hebrew word boker uh, is not a literal term, B-O-Q-E-R, that that can also mean a broad period of time. However, uh, boker is never used metaphorically of the 205 times that it is used in the Old Testament. There is not one single instance that it is used in a figurative or metaphorical way. If you look in the Hebrew dictionaries, it doesn't list any, they do not list any figurative or metaphorical meaning for boker. So you can't try to make this figurative. It is a literal mourning. Other, Furthermore, there's another contention made. If you look at verse 4, chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 4, we read, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And there the word day does not refer to a 24-hour period, but in Genesis 2, 4, day equals the entire week. Well, no one, at least no one that I've read who has any sense in the original languages, argues that the term day in Hebrew can't refer to a long period of time. It is when it is qualified by an ordinal number or when it is qualified by phrases like evening and morning that it always means a 24-hour period. In this particular case, you have the phrase ba, the preposition ba, which means in. And when you have that preposition, it is an idiom for at that time period. It is just a broad term in the day, in that time period, and that is idiomatic. But the word yom, when used with a number, when used uh, in reference to uh, a, uh, a phrase like morning and evening, always refers to a 24-hour period. Furthermore, there's a couple of other important problems. Let's look at this particular chart here. Now, in the first, in the second verse, we saw that the earth was chaotic, unformed, and in order to form it, in order to order it again, God does this in three days. In the first day, He creates light, separates light from darkness. Day two, He creates the atmosphere, separates the upper waters from the lower waters, and on day three, He uh, restricts the seas, the dry land is apparent, uh, vegetation appears, he creates vegetation, and there's geographic separation. Then in the second group of three days, he orders the emptiness, the bohu. He corrects that problem. In day four, he has light bearers. Notice, 
Day one, he creates light. It's not localized in a body. So day four, he creates the light bearers, the sun, moon, and stars. But the point I want to make here, we're going to see this chart several more times, but the point I want to make here is when does God create vegetation? Day three. When does the sun appear? Day four. Does anybody notice a problem with that? Plants need photosynthesis in order to survive. So if these are longer than 24-hour days, if we're talking about a, a million years or two million years or three million years or even longer periods of time, then you can't have vegetation before you have the sun. So that's just a basic problem that breaks down the whole concept of either progressive creationism or the problem of the day-age view. And then we have Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, where you have the Sabbath law given to the Jews. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Principle. Six days you're going to work, and you're going, you shall labor and do all your work. That's the mandate. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why? Why are we going to follow this pattern, God? Why can't we work all the time? Not that I'm going to buy into any racial uh, epithets or racial slurs, but there's always been the connotation to Jews that they're hard workers, and, and um, they would say, why do we have to stop working? Why can't we just work seven days a week and make more money? God says, because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rest of the seventh day. There's a cre creation week pattern. Now, if those days aren't literal 24-hour days, then, gee, I just have to work. I can work for 6,000 years and rest in the 7,000th year. I can rest for six geologic ages and rest for the seventh geologic age. You see, if the days of Genesis 1 are not literal 24-hour days, then there's no meaning uh, for the commandment related to the Sabbath obedience. So you have a tremendous breakdown in meaning of every place else where you have the fact that God made everything in six days. Furthermore, when this passage says that the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, that means that everything that's in the planet, everything, including the fossils, were made in that six-day period. You can't throw the fossils below before Genesis 1-2 and say that these fossils were created by some uh, by the judgment on Satan and you have some sort of pre-Genesis 1-2 event because uh, they preserved this because what this verse says is everything, even the fossils, everything that is in the planet now was created, was made, Asa, in that six-day period. That's why you have this complete renovation that would have left nothing. If anything had existed previous to that, it would not have survived. Everything is completely overhauled and renovated in Genesis chapters, um, in Genesis 1, verses 2 through the end of the chapter in those six days. Now, the last problem that people raise is that the sixth day, well, there was just too much to do. Look, at Adam had to name all the animals. It doesn't say God had, that Adam had to name all the animals. He just named all the birds, the livestock, and the beasts of the field, not the beasts of the earth. So that is, uh, some suggest that that's 3,000 different uh, kinds. Some suggest maybe 500. But anyway, it is a doable number. It's not hundreds, or, I mean, not thousands and thousands or tens of thousands. This is what happens on the sixth day. God creates livestock, the beasts of the earth, and everything that crawled. That took about five seconds or less. God created Adam. That took five seconds or less. God planted the garden. Once again, that took probably five seconds or less. So now we're up to at the maximum 15 seconds. Then God had a conversation with Adam. We don't know how much he told him, but let's give him a couple of hours. So now we're up to two hours and 15 seconds. God brought certain animals to Adam. Well, that takes a little time, so as the animals come by, let's add five or six hours as he's naming these animals. Remember, Adam had capacities we don't have, so he could categorize. His brain was like a computer. He categorized, classified, and rattled off names very quickly. And so as it comes towards the end of the day, then Adam recognizes he doesn't have a corresponding mate, and God creates Eve. 
it can all happen in one 24-hour period very easily. And that brings us to our very last question, which is, what about creation through the process of evolution? And that's called theistic evolution, and that's for folks who don't want to think and who just want to buy the conclusions of evolutionary science without analyzing anything from a biblical viewpoint. The most, And the thing is that no self-respecting evolutionist is going to have any respect for either theistic evolution, the day-age theory, progressive creationism at all. To a Darwinistic evolutionist, to a secular evolutionist, there is no reason whatsoever to introduce God into the equation at all. So you see, when the accommodationist tries to come along and say, okay, we can, we can do this so that at least our witness will be accepted by the secular geologist, the secular geologist isn't going to buy anything other than straight, non-theistic evolution. He has no respect for any of these accommodationist views. And the people who think that somehow that's going to impress a secular scientist and he, he's not going to have to give up his, his education in order to become a Christian is a fool on a fool's errand, and he doesn't uh, understand the Bible whatsoever. Uh, we'll come back and start looking at the first day of creation next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for the clarity of it and how it helps us to understand the the purpose for mankind and his function in the angelic conflict. We pray that you would help us to understand the importance of origins and all that you have said or revealed in your word related to creation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.